0: Welcome to our second podcast. My name is Sonia Collator and I am the host of The Color of Us. This podcast is intended to amplify the voices of multiracial and multicultural youth, as well as educate regarding issues impacting this community. Here, we highlight expert perspectives, as well as members of the community to produce educational material in the hopes of fostering needed conversation. Welcome to The Color of Us. I'm very excited to introduce today's speaker, and I'm looking forward to the conversation we're going to have regarding multiracial and multicultural experiences. Rudy Guevara Jr. is an associate professor of of Asian Pacific American Studies in the School for Social Transformation at Arizona State University. His research and teaching interests encompass comparative ethnic studies, Pacific Islander and Asian American studies, as well as race and ethnic relations. He is the author of Becoming Mexicano, Multi Ethnic Identities and Communities in San Diego, and co editor of Transnational Crossroads, Remapping the Americas and the Pacific. His forthcoming publications include Aloha Compadre, Latinos in Hawaii, Red and Yellow, Black and Brown, Decentering Whiteness and Mixed Race Studies, and Beyond Ethnicity New Politics of Race in Hawaii. He has also published articles in the Journal of Asian American Studies, the Journal of San Diego History, and the Asian American Literary Review. Thank you for being here. And now let's get started. Can you begin by telling our listeners a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. Um, so I, I'm a self-identified Mexicano. So and for those who aren't familiar with uh, Mexicano identity, it's somebody that's of Mexican and Filipino uh, descent. And um, I'm born and raised in San Diego. And I've, um, yeah, I've been, lived quite a, quite a number of places. And um, right now, currently, I teach at Arizona State University. You know, I've been teaching um, at ASU for almost 14 years now. And um, it's been a real interesting um, journey just because, in terms of like the work that I do, not just with, you know, Mexipino and my identity, I think growing up in multiracial communities or multicultural communities, it's been real interesting because I grew up not just with Mexicans and Filipinos, but also like Tomoros, um, Samoans, Tongans, Blacks, Southeast Asians, um, and, and other Pacific Islanders. So it's been a, you know, really rich experience in growing up and having a lot of intersecting communities. And so I think a lot of that growing up has informed of sort of the work that I do now. And what I'm comfortable with, particularly as I'm looking at the intersections with, you know, Chicanos, Latinos, or Latinx communities. And um, and yeah, and and both comparatively and racially, how we function. Because I think one of the big things for me is like you you know, when, when we write about communities, oftentimes communities are written in isolation from each other. But as we know, like within multiracial spaces, they're not in isolation. They're always engaging, interacting. And, um, and oftentimes, you know, um, mixed, mixed race children come out of, out of those particular communities in various, you know, in various mixes.
0: Thank you so much. Now you talked about your own experiences as growing up mixed race, as a multiracial person. What was one of the biggest challenges for you as an adolescent?
1: Um, I think one of one of the biggest things were was um I guess being heard, you know, by others that I I embrace both and I can be both. I think one of the things is like oftentimes. Particularly growing up, and you still find this today. Is people, you know, want you to choose. You know, um, they they're they're not sure what to make of you sometimes. Um, oftentimes, I get just racialized as Chicano or, or, or Latino until I mention, you know, my other backgrounds, and then people, you know, will will then say, "Oh, okay, I can I can tell now." But it's like, um, I think one of the the, ch- the challenges is um, being heard that like you know I can be this and that. I can be both. I don't have to choose. And even as a kid, you know, others were trying to sort of um, pressure you to choose. Um, and growing up, it's something, you know, that I grew up with, but I was always raised to be proud of me both. And so I've never denied one over another, you know, in terms of my, my uh, cultural or racial backgrounds. And so I think that has been the thing is to push back against what people's expectations are and what they want you to choose versus how you identify and I think that's been one of the biggest things that I've been you know, working on over you know, the last 20 some years of this work is that, you know, I get to define who I am, not someone else.
0: Most definitely being seen and heard as a multiracial person is one of the struggles that many multiracial youth often experience. Why do you think as a society or in terms of institutions and media, et cetera, there is an attempt to categorize people who are mixed race as monoracial?
1: I think sometimes it's easier to do that you know you know i think one of the things is you know oftentimes folks don't understand the complexity of being mixed race and um this issue of having to choose and i think um again it's letting individuals choose for themselves and you know this idea and pressure because you know oftentimes it's discomfort of others they can't they can't place you in a box versus like how you see and you know and oftentimes we get all your your you know they're they're confused or they're like, you know, they have problems it's like, no, we're not the ones that are confused, you are. <laughs> you're just right. trying to figure out who we are. We are fine with who we are. You just, all these outside pressures making you confused over time because you're just tired, you know, you, you get bombarded with these, these, these statements or questions all the time. And and even um the, the microaggressions that come with that. And so I think oftentimes, you know, you know, and even early on institution, right? You always, you know, in early census, forms and, and or even you know whether it's the census or even like state and and other local you know racial you know data like people want to box you and, and, and you know and oftentimes there's not the box for to or to choose more than one not so much a mixed box but to choose more than one that even oftentimes I would write as a, you know when I was younger I would write my own box and write my own identity because nothing that was there captured who I was and so that was my sort of way of like also pushing back against those sort of those um those ideas of who I should be.
0: Being enough is a theme that many mixed race youth often struggle with. In what ways do you think multiracial people experience similar or different microaggressions and discriminations than with other racial groups?
1: I think one of the things is, is the issue of cultural authenticity, right? Is like you have to perform your, your race or culture in order to be seen and accepted. And oftentimes your identities are policed you know, for lack of a better word, they're they're sort of policed by others to see what is, you know, who who gets to define. So for example, who gets to define what is Latino or Chicano, who gets to define what is Black or who gets to define what is Filipino. And there's these things it's like, you know, some people, you know, feel pressured to like perform or even just like have to know all these particular things in order to be culturally accepted. And I think that's one of the issues that happens, you know, you'll find it in monoracial communities, but with your mix, you find you're dealing with multiple communities. So it's like extra work, (laughs) you know what I mean? Exactly. You know, and it can be exhausting sometimes, you know, Um, and I think too, you know, what you find similar in monoracial communities, you'll find in the mixed race community, and that's the issue of colorism, you know, um, in terms of skin color and anti-Blackness, anti-Indigenous, you know, there's all these layers that happen. And, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're mixed, you know, sometimes you're dealing you know, depending on how many racial ethnic backgrounds or indigenous backgrounds you have, you have multiple ones that you have to navigate and you're dealing with from all these particular fronts, you know, um, and, and oftentimes, you know, when this this is all remnants and sort of the legacy of, you know, white supremacy, racism, colonialism. And so the, all these things have influenced how our communities even sort of, you know, define ourselves in some ways, but, you know, but but are influenced in the ways that we, we, you know, again, for lack of a better word, we police each other and our identities and who gets to belong and who gets marginalized within our own communities. And I think, yeah, I think it's very similar for monoracial, but we're dealing with more than one group. You're gonna have to <laughs> juggle these various levels of, of scrutiny, so to speak.
0: Most definitely. You talked about how multiracial individuals have to experience the pressure of meeting standards from both cultures. So I would now like to talk a little bit about cross-cultural code switching, which Mm -hmm. is when individuals purposely modify their behavior to accommodate to the cultural setting in which they're placed in. Many multiracial youth learn at an early age to cross-cultural code switch. And from your own personal experience, did you have any childhood or adolescent experiences with this when you were growing up?
1: Um, I think, yeah, in some ways, yeah, because, I mean, you're navigating different communities. So, for example, like, you know, and I think one of the ways code switching is most significant is in language, how we use language. I think, you know, whether it's being bilingual and switching to different, like, for example, you know, in, in my communities, for example, if you're speaking Spanish and then English and you switch to Tagalog or, you know, some other Filipino language, there's, you know, there's these switching of languages that are code for your community, cultural codes for your communities. But I think um, it's also like too growing up particular communities and, and sort of the slang words that you use and sort of, you know, talking, how you talk with your friends is going to be very different sometimes with how you talk to your parents or how you, you know, navigate with your family at home. And I think language also works with, um, and I found this too also, you know, um, growing up and particularly as I was, you know, in, in other settings as, as an adult, or, or I should say a young adult, was, was the environment. So let's say in school, there's this particular way that people are supposed to behave, you know, um, properly, particularly in, in the university, whatever, um, versus like when you're out with your friends in the street and hanging out. Like there's all these ways that you have to code switch language when you're hanging out versus when you then step into in the university campus and you, and you, know, people are looking at you in a different way. <laughs> and because if you're a person of color in a university setting, oftentimes, you, you know, you feel the eyes on you even more sometimes. So those are the ways. And I think language is one and environment are factors that really influence how people code switch.
0: Why do you think it's important for multiracial people to experience a sense of community?
1: So they know that, so that they know they're not alone, I think is the big thing. Um, That they're not alone in their experiences. And that I think when you find other folks that, you know, share in these things, you, you have kinship with people. So you create, this kinship of other multiracial people that, you know, can have diverging experiences, but also very similar ones. And oftentimes these similar ones, you know, go through a lot of the various different, you know, um, mixed race um, individuals that they can find common, you know, they can find sort of, um, again, kinship within these common stories that they tell, the common struggles, the common sort of, you know, ideas of cultural authenticity. Know and I think even growing up, um, and well, even with my first book, Becoming Mexicano, you know, when I would interview people and I interviewed multi generations, so I interviewed people my generation, a generation younger, and two generations older than me. So, but we had kinship with each other because we all had particular experiences, even over time and from various generations, of what it meant to be mixed. And so, when you find other, you know, mixed mixed race people, you know, you just like you gravitate towards them because it's like then you, you know, you have a level of comfort, comfortability and kinship that allows you to sort of engage in particular ways where sometimes you'll have spaces where it feels more like home, you know, in these things. So you don't have to explain yourself, you know, in ways that, you know, you'd have to do in other spaces.
0: In your book, Becoming Mexicano: Multi-Ethnic Identities and Communities in San Diego, you write about the social historical experiences of two ethnic groups, Mexican and Filipino in San Diego, California. Can you tell our listeners about your book and multi-ethnic bonding that many ethnic groups experience?
1: Yeah, so, you know, growing up, um, you know, I, I oftentimes, you know, what led me to, to write this book was that I never saw anything that was done on my communities. I mean, I would, you know, when I read the literature, when I was doing research on this topic, I found mentions of our community, but never anybody really actually was writing anything significant about it. Um, and and actually, and I've i told this story before. There was actually a sociologist in the 1930s that mentioned the Mexicano communities, not using the word Mexicano, but mixed Mexican Filipino, and he actually said that our population would die out, <laughs> you know. And so you know, and I'm looking at this, I'm like, no, we're like five generations now, at least in in, in San Diego where, where I'm from, at least five generations now. So we did not die out. We've actually our numbers have grown exponentially, and so nobody was talking about this. So for me, you know, this is one of the things too about and the power of storytelling, particularly if you're coming from communities that aren't really um, visible, right? Is, you know, and what I took upon myself is that you write your communities into existence because they're not there. So write them yourself into existence so that they become part of the story um, that we tell in terms of, you know, whatever you know, subject you're, you're looking at. But I think it's important, it was important for me to write my community existence and to tell the story the various layers of how Mexican, why Mexicans and Filipinos intermarried so often, right, and it was, you know, one because of the legacy of Spanish colonialism and both the indigenous and, and mixed race, or how they call them mestizos, Mexicans and Filipinos, you know, since the, since the 1500s, you know, the late, mid to late 1500s, came together. And continue to form bonds and relationships, and that was part of, you know, under Spanish colonialism, that they shared religion, Catholicism, and other um, similar, you know, cultural traits from that. But they also had various of their own indigenous experiences that were very similar as well. And so that was the foundation that they had. And then they also were, sh- sh- they also both experienced racial discrimination and segregation and violence. Um, they, you know, they, you know, experienced um, racial oppression in their workplaces. They were segregated into, you know, um, racial, racially confined communities. So they experienced all these things, but they also fought back together, whether it was through labor unions, whether it was through civil rights organizations, they always came, you know, they came together, not always, but they came together and, and you know, fought back. Now, one of the things is that, you know, not to make this like, you know, you know, this is a, a really unique experience because of all the layers of things that they shared that they got along better and they saw more commonality, So they married intermarried more often. Um, that's not always the case with all other mixed race groups because sometimes there's tension. And I think another reason why I wanted to talk about my communities was because when looking at, let's say white and other, oftentimes there was cultural conflict.
0: And there Most was definitely.
1: issues, but if, you know, here I'm talking about two minority groups, right? Mm-hmm. Two non-white groups that shared so many things. So they found commonality and you'll often find that too, commonality with, um uh, you know, other non-white groups that come together, but it's not always all good, right? It's not, it's not always, culprit. there's also tension. There's also conflict, you know, particularly if you're looking at anti-blackness, you know, and colorism, you know, the, again, and anti-blackness is a big thing in a lot of communities that, you know, these things experience, so that can, prevent that from happening sometimes but more often when we come together it's because we are sharing these same experiences oftentimes of racism and oppression and we come together to, to collectively fight back and to you know find a place so to speak you know in in our larger communities
0: the multiracial community has been marginalized for a long time and underrepresented and underheard However, recently the multiracial population in the United States has been growing rapidly with a 32% increase from 2010 to 2020, according to the latest census. What do you think this tells us about the present and future of American society?
1: Well, I think one of the things that it, it really highlights what's always been there. And that's that you know, as, a, as a country, we've, there, we've always been mixed. There's always the one thing you can say about humanity is that we've migrated everywhere and we've mixed together. We've had you know, relations with other groups, wherever, and you know uh, other, other folks come out of this, these processes. Um, I think what is interesting is now you know, since the 2000 census is that you can mark more than one racial category. And it's more people are feeling comfortable about doing that. That's why you're seeing the numbers grow. It's because more people are accepting of being able to do that or want to check more than one racial or ethnic category. And so I think, you know, folks have always been there. It's just the means by which they can now, you know, through the federal government be recognized and and, and have these things, but the stories have always been there. Um, and it's just going to increase too, particularly because as, you know, the country's fast becoming predominantly non-white and all and groups are coming together and mixing, It's it's going to be, you know, predominantly, you know, or I should say predominantly the, the, the population is going to grow significantly, or I should say exponentially in many ways. However, that doesn't mean that things are going to get better in terms of like racism and anti-Blackness, because we, again, we got to deal with it within our own communities, because we're, again, still dealing with the legacy of racism, colonialism, and white supremacy in our community. So just because we have a fast-growing multiracial population does not mean that the race problem's over. You know, we we still have a race problem today and it's it's gotten worse actually. And so we need to address these things and and work through this in ways that, you know, that enable us to be honest with ourselves so that we can move forward and not have to deal with the same things that we've been dealing with since this, you know, this country's founding. You know, so I think that's where we're To be mindful that, you know, just because we're multiracial does not mean it's kumbaya and everything's all good. There's still, we still have a lot of work to do, but there's people that want to do the work and that's what we should do is focus on, you know, the the ways that we can change things for the better for everybody.
0: Most definitely. Seeing as the issues of racism are still ever prevalent in multiracial communities, in what ways do you think this issue should be addressed?
1: Well, I think... um, we we have to have these honest conversations with ourselves because, you know, um, as, as I said earlier is that, you know we all deal with anti-blackness in our communities, we all deal with colorism, we all deal with, you know, various ways that we, you know, um, mistreat our, our own in, in our communities. And we have to be honest that we're, you know, people don't want to admit when they're racist or that they have racist racist tendencies, you know, and we need to be honest with ourselves. The only way you move forward is being honest, you know. And it's 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 bad enough that we we deal with dealing with it, you know, when we're dealing with the larger white American population. Yet we still have to deal with it within our own families and communities. Because you know, some of the most painful stuff comes from within our own families. You know, people some some siblings get treated better than others because of color of their skin, you know, or you know, um, people say things in the family that are racist, you know, even though they're married within these groups. And so it's sort of like we have to be, and we have to call. Call out those moments when this stuff happens and hold people accountable. And after having these discussions, then call folks in to build community at the same time.
0: At The Color of Us, the mission is to raise awareness, foster connection and conversations, and to educate and elevate the voices of multiracial and multicultural youth. So now, as we conclude our conversation, is there any final advice that you could give to my generation of multiracial and multicultural youth?
1: Yeah, I would say don't be, don't be afraid to embrace all of your identities. You know, you can be both all, you know, be secure in your allness. You know, you don't have to choose, because I think one of the things is that people think, you know, or or the the, the idea is that if you choose one, you lose one, and it shouldn't have to be about that. And so, you know, don't ever try to appease the discomfort of other people so you can feel like you belong because you always belong. And you should always be proud of all your, your various you know, ancestries. I think that's important because you know, when we embrace all of our various ancestries and, and we acknowledge our ancestors because for me, it's a bit that you acknowledge your ancestors. You know, there might be parts of your identity you know, that you're ashamed of or that you have issues with, but those are still your ancestors. But you, know, you draw on these ancestors to give you strength to, to move forward um, and heal particularly for the, the lines that have caused damage, you can heal. Um, and, and I think that in, in healing, you know, we're able, you know, to be more comfortable with our illness, and be proud of it. And I think that's one thing, you know, for other generations is, that, you know, don't let anybody ever tell you who you are. You define your narrative. You're the author of your story. So you define who you are. Don't let somebody else do it for you.
0: Absolutely. Embracing multiracialism is what The Color of Us is all about. And I'm so happy to have had you as a feature on our podcast today to bring awareness to these enlightening issues. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it's been an honor. Thank you. And I look forward to hopefully continuing the conversations.